everybody. Mike and Andy here. Um, Vox World Headquarters, Brea, California. We're grateful you're tuning in again, and um, it is a gorgeous day after a couple days of clouds. I know you're uh, curious, middle of May. Yeah. 2017, about 75 degrees. Right. Um, pretty awesome. And he's in his tank top, and so that's a big deal. He's not wearing Ducks gear. Uh, I am. He's got a hat. No, I am wearing my Ducks gear. Um, but they just won a, a game seven, so yippee. Broke a four-year curse. It's yep. more than a yippee. It's a holy cow. We're going to get killed by the Predators. Okay. <laughs> so evidently that's another hockey team for those of you that are unaware. Um, today we've got an interesting show. Oh, and by the way, thank you for those of you that have written in or texted that have just you said you've been praying. That means means a lot. Still in the thick of anxiety and depression. It's really bad today. And um, uh, it's it's so encouraging, uh, first of all, to know that you know I'm not alone because <laughs> many of you have shared your stories. And and secondly, want you to know you're not alone if you're if you're suffering through some of this and and it just it just blows chunks. I hate it. So, um, but we just we just concluded an interview with uh, a guy named Dan Koch, and mm-hmm. um, he's part of an extended podcast family that we've referenced before. So, Andy, why don't you tell us first about Bad Christian? Sure. And liturgist, because those are mentioned. Yes. And then talk about Science Mike, and then okay. get to Dan and what he's doing. Do that yeah, there. just do like a minute and a half on it or yeah, something. Yeah, for sure. So um, over a year ago, for about the past two and a half years, I would say that Bad Christian um, is a podcast uh, made up of uh, three guys that were formerly of a band called uh, Emery. And they, they kind of were a, they were a tooth and nail band. They kind of were known as a Christian band. But um, they started this show a couple of years ago to really have huge conversations and tons of pushback in very uh, crass uh, you know, entertaining ways, I would say, but but I wouldn't dismiss the reality that what they were talking about was really beneficial. Yeah. Um, so they did a great job of having a lot of guests on the show um, to this day. Uh, they were ahead of this whole. And podcast. they were, yeah, I would argue they, they were ahead of entering the podcast space to be entertaining, but to really confront Christian uh, culture and subculture. So um, Dan has been a longtime friend of uh, the guys in Emory, and they had him on the show. I think Dan said like eight or nine times um, since then. Uh, they the guys at Bad Christian have started spinoff shows and. So he's also been a guest on Matt Carter's show called Break It Down, where uh, he talks about records and kind of a very detailed way of breaking down something, which is pretty interesting. Um, so you have Bad Christian on one side that's been on a very um, interesting, somewhat entertaining approach, like um, as, as you might expect from the name. Then on the other side, uh, you have this other podcast called uh, The Liturgist, which is made up of Michael Gungor, who was known um, for the uh, lead worshiper for the band Gungor, who's received tons of controversy and flack over the past few years. And then um, this other guy named Mike McCarg, who we've had on the show, also known as Science Mike. Um, and they've uh, really held conversations around, uh, you know, I, I would probably say progressive spirituality. So it, how do we, and we would all say that these are forms of deconstructing podcasts like stepping back from the norms and forms we know of christianity entering into what about this what about that what do we know about god in this sphere in that sphere it's x y and z um and so, and Dan had been listening to a lot of that stuff over the past few years. Uh, and as you guys know, Science Mike, who we had on our show, he has his own show called Ask Science Mike. Lots of people ask him questions, doubts, skepticism. He answers them in, in his kind of way. So Dan eventually, um, kind of pre-election, was just feeling like, I need to have... Um, he would come on the Bad Christian show and actually ask very hard, difficult questions. And a lot of times they just couldn't get answered. And Dan would always feel a little bit unfulfilled and was just like, ah, I can't... I can't get to a place where I can actually have these big conversations with uh, the type of people that might bring some answer or might bring some direction um, out of them. Um, so he started with a show called Depolarize, which was a way to um, 
really confront both the right and the left in the political sphere and have guests on to bring compelling arguments and really yeah. hold uh, a pushback and a middle ground to say, well, what about this and what about that? Like, how do how do I really appreciate the Trump supporter? Or how do I really understand how controversial Hillary might have been? So, I mean, those are very, very broad conversations. Yeah. I've gleaned a lot of very uh, social um uh, things that's actually uh, like social perspectives, psychological perspectives, and the dynamics of society. There's been some fascinating guests he's had on his show. Michael Ware, who we interviewed, I heard him first on that show, and we were just absolutely enamored yep. with and excited to have him. Yep. So um, he he's launched a recent podcast uh, called Reconstruct um, with his friend John Weiss. Uh, they have a band together called Pacific Gold uh, that they play in, um, and so they've uh, similar to Depolarize. Dan has wanted to then extend his conversation out of deconstruction to then what does reconstruction look like and right. how do we kind of enter that space, which I was really excited to hear the first two episodes about, um, as Mike and I have talked a lot about, the idea that we absolutely give tons of permission for the process of deconstruction, the process of spiritual growth and maturity. However, we just didn't feel confident that we could live there. And so that we would want to you know, start looking at Jesus and seeing building blocks of like, well, what does it mean to hold faith? What does it mean to walk in it? And what does it mean to reflect it in community and yep. um, embody what it looks like to be a Jesus person? So this is a really long interview. We're kind yes. of interviewing each other. And I know it's long. Um, but there's some really good nuggets in here. Yeah. Like I highly, if you can get through it, I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about our church, um, and talk a lot about some of the, some of the ways we've tried to form a community out of the podcast. I think, I think it's really good stuff and he's got a fascinating view on some things, but it's, it's long because <laughs> yeah. we're interviewing each other. Yep. So if you can make it through, I think you'll find it worth your while. Yep. Absolutely. Andy, what, what number would you give this episode? 78. A 78 out of 10, which oh, is incredible. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought what well, you were asking, what number episode are we oh, I'm on? I'm sorry. We're on 78. Oh, oh for me. Ranking. Okay. For me, this is, this is a nine or a 10, Ooh. mainly because I, I, as you guys will come out of this, hopefully, if you make it through the whole thing, I think we give a very strong comprehension of what we're trying to accomplish at Vox Community. So we, yeah. we've talked a little bit about it on other shows, and we've kind of highlighted certain uh, values and things we do. But I think Dan did a great job of um, just arriving at certain questions of like, well, why is the Eucharist so important? Why is that center? You know, how do you really have a church that um, doesn't make a stance on affirming and non-affirming? And so we, we get into a lot of that stuff as well. Yeah. So it's... Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Yep. Here you go. Here's yep. Dan. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Coke from Seattle in a wood paneled room with a large beard. Coming at you live. A San Francisco giant sweatshirt. My goodness. You you um and, and they're badly the, needing a haircut. Oh, what's that like? And, and and there's some sort of are those antlers behind you? Is that what is yeah, that? That is, was a birthday gift from my mom. My wife is not into it. She's a vegetarian, but they're just like from eBay. Like someone else killed a deer. Perfect. <laughs> Hanging. Were, if you could just see the wood paneling, like there are three different sort of patterns of of wood, yeah. and it just says, "If Seattle were a house." It would look a lot like that, I think. Yeah, it's my studio. What, yeah. What's the it. scent that it, that permeates that room with such fine-looking wood? Musk. You know, it I actually this is a little bit uh, embarrassing, but I, I've kind of gotten into burning incense recently, and <laughs> I like and the um, the incensio de Santa Fe, which is like wood. It's like pressed wood or like um, particle board, basically that they infuse with like 
different wood scents. So it actually smells like wood smoke. It's so dumb. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's so awesome and like such a caricature. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> perfect. So, so we're doing something interesting. Dan um, is recording this for his podcast. Um, we're recording this for ours. But Dan is uh, someone we've been excited to talk about for several months now. He launched a podcast called Depolarize, and that was just and 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 that was um, due to the election, correct? I mean, as you saw yeah, what was it happening, launched a, yeah, maybe like a month before the election or something like that. Tell us, give us a little bit. I mean, that's where we heard Michael Ware. Yep. And so we had him on our show because we heard him on your oh, show. Yeah, he's and, the best, right? So what was the what was the impetus behind uh, the Depolarize thing? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll back up before I started the podcast. For a couple years now, I have been increasingly, um, I would say, enjoying posting questions or like a little bit controversial topics on my personal Facebook. And then I found that I enjoyed and had some skill for like moderating the comments section. Oh, wow. And... Um, I think that what I was doing was I was asking serious questions and I was kind of open to either side giving good reasons. And I just was sort of trying to keep people from getting, you know, at each other's necks. Right. Yeah. And um, sort of like increasingly people who would see me who hadn't seen me in a little while would mention that like they would. It's the thing that they would mention like at church or something like, hey, I really appreciate, you know, your the political conversations on your Facebook, it's such a breath of fresh air that, that nobody is calling names and stuff. And, and I was pretty active in kind of creating that culture, just just like personally, you know, just like I was not working and doing that instead um, <laughs> throughout the day. And then uh, I when when Trump was in the general election, I was like, I, I should do something. Yeah, I don't want to. I you know, at the time I was I was very concerned about him becoming president. Um, there's a, I have sort of modified views now that he's been president for a while. Um, but at the time I was like very afraid. Um, and I was like, I got to do something. So I started the show or I was like, I want to start a show. Then I talked to a couple of my friends who know me well and, and who we, we talk about politics on a, on a text thread. I have three really, really smart buddies. One of them's in PR. One of them is just a political junkie. He's a, he works at a genetics company and one of them is a lawyer who used to work for the Department of Justice in San Francisco. Wow. So it's a pretty amazing Yeah. <laughs> and I I'm the I'm the total amateur uh comparatively. So uh I I was I talked with them throughout the course of a day and basically realized okay, this is what I can do. This is the thing I could offer is creating this sort of middle the safe middle ground uh for people and and that was and I thought that that would help, you know, my little part in like not getting Trump elected because I thought, well, if people are really willing to listen to their side, then they won't vote for Trump. I think that was a little naive. I think what I have learned since is I have a much more robust and nuanced view of like human psychology and the way that we create and, and make arguments and, and where, where rational and political arguments fit in in our cognitive process and, and how they connect to our identities. And um, could you so be actually, one of my three friends? <laughs> After yeah, that, I'm like, sure, wow. man. Add me on to your to your thread. Yeah. So I um so I would say it started as a way to kind of stop Trump in my own little way. Not that I thought I could really move the needle, but it ended up more as a way of I would say more often than not now I am 
trying to critique the left, which is my own political side, in um, encouraging them to attempt empathy and compassion for the right. It's not the only thing I do. I have guests critique both sides almost always, uh, depending on the topic. But I would say, if anything, I, I, I would say my main goal now, or my, what I end up doing, is talk speaking to my own people, roughly speaking on the left, and, and saying, hey, uh, we have confirmation bias as well. We didn't criticize Obama because we liked him. You know, I didn't because I liked him. And that's exactly what I'm accusing Trump voters of doing is not criticizing Trump because they like him. So, you know, it, it doesn't mean that I agree with Trump. I, I think he will probably go down as one of the least effectual, most inept presidents in U.S. history, if not, if not supremely damaging. Um, but at the same time, I need to check my own biases and I need to apply the same criticism to myself and my own tribe as I want to um, apply to the other side. Yeah. So it's this really cool middle ground where um, what you did on your Facebook, I didn't know about the Facebook story, but I, the podcast really represents that. So, so great job. And then you just launched something um, called Reconstruct. And uh, we just yeah. did a, we, we uh, um, had just did a, uh, we started a reconstruction conversation. Andy then said, hey, oh man, the depolarized guys are doing a reconstruct conversation. And we're like, dang. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so what was that? What was that journey like? Because you were involved with Bad Christian, right? Which is very well known in the, in the podcast yeah. space. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, so I had been on so Reconstruct, uh, which is co-hosted by my friend John Rains, and is kind of our our dual brainchild. Does he live in um, Seattle? Because that's a great. He name. He lives in Seattle. That's a yeah, great name. For and him. Uh, we, <laughs> yeah, Rains. Yeah, he's also from California. But um, <laughs> so we had decided to do Reconstruct actually before I I started Depolarize. Depolarize oh. was the kind of thing that I could sort of whip together a, a sixty minute conversation pretty quickly. Reconstruct is is more methodical and so we had already been working on it and that idea came Well, so I had been on bad Christian as a guest uh, Probably I've probably been on like eight eight or eight or ten times and then recently I just did four episodes of break it down with which is Matt Carter's solo show so maybe 12 13 times and a lot of times people would say, you know, you should do your own theology podcast or whatever. So I was kind of thinking about that. But then John came to me with the idea of, yeah, but you and I disagree. And yet we play in a band together at the time we were playing in Pacific Gold together. And we hang out all the time. We have these bonfires. Every single time we have a bonfire with our friends, we end up drinking beer and talking theology till 2 a.m. And a bunch of people end up listening and like gathering around us. <laughs> uh, because we're both, we don't leave a lot of room for other people in the conversation. That's probably w why they're listening and not talking our fault. But so then we were like, yeah, it's kind of thinking about that. Like that's unique. Uh, what would it be? And so we really, we spent a couple months meeting pretty regularly and kind of hammering out what we wanted to do differently. You know, we both listened to the liturgists. Um, we had both listened to a lot of bad Christian and ask science Mike, um, and we were just kind of trying to think, you know, what's what's something unique we can bring. And so, you know, broadly speaking, the uniqueness is uh, we're not stopping at deconstruction. We're not just stopping at doubt. Um, and we're also not just stopping with 
well, here's what a bunch of like leftist deconstruction deconstructed Christians believe. Um, which, you know, I think right now is kind of where liturgists is at. It, they, mm. Mike and Mike are very much on the same page. They're, they're far left theologically. I, I really, I basically ag- I agree with most of what they believe. Um, but we wanted to kind of, and I think that they're serving a different population. So our, our ideal listener is a person who has done a lot of deconstruction, who has had a lot of doubt, asked a lot of questions and, but once faith again and, um, or a new kind of it or, you know, whatever wants to reapproach it. That's sort of like our ideal listener. And then there's of course people earlier or later in that process that will find it interesting or just anybody who likes theology, but it's kind of, we want it like, so we had Peter ends on and he's known for teaching that the Bible is not inerrant. That's a view that I share. I think it's not inerrant, but for reconstruct, what we wanted to talk with ends about is, so what is the Bible? Give us a positive argument. Don't just tell us what it's not. And not that he's, you know, I think he's been right to talk about it in his academic and popular space to do what he's done. But for our purposes, it's like, great. So if I agree with you on that, where do I go from there? How do I, how do I start reading the Bible again? How do I think about it? How do I let it speak to me? Right. Yeah. Right. And that, and one of the things I, I, listened in on and uh, thought were fascinating were the three guiding values that are guiding this. Because yeah. uh, first of all, I mean, we we share the same, you know, we love permission to give people permission for, for deconstruction. Oh, yeah. That is huge yeah. um, and, and sorely needed. Um, but we're, we, same this, we share the same dissatisfaction with just stopping there. Yeah. Um, you can't build a life on that. And so... Um, uh, I thought your guiding principles were interesting because it's kind of an entrance into how do you do reconstruction? Deconstruction's easy, um, at least once you're given permission to do it. Um, reconstruction, those are different things. So share those, uh, if you would. Tell us a little bit about what those mean and how they're going to flesh out in uh, in the space you're, you're taking up. Yeah, so um, John and I spent a bunch of time on this, and, and we kind of came to three three guiding principles, which are uh, meaningful unity, critical charity, and serious theology. And so I'll just go through those one at a time. So the first one is meaningful unity. Another way of saying this is like ecumenism or ecumenicalism. Um, We, you know, Bonhoeffer has this thing, cheap grace versus costly grace. And we think that there's kind of a similar difference between like cheap ecumenicalism and, and like true ecumenicalism. For those who don't know what that means, it means like all the different denominations and sort of like branches of the Christian church worldwide um, coming together in some sort of a way. So we want to have meaningful unity, which means we both we simultaneously acknowledge that we disagree and we also affirm our connectedness as Christians. So a big thing about our show is. You know, when we do a Q&A episode, like for instance, episode three is what must one believe to be saved? We both answer the same question and we answer it differently. And we interview each other and we try and tease out what the other person is really getting at because we think that both of our answers are options. Like Christians could agree with John or me. And, John, and John's coming from a different theological place entirely. Yeah, so 
yeah, broadly speaking, like I'm kind of like a progressive on my way into the Catholic Church as like a leftist Catholic. It's weird. Um, <laughs> and John is like reformed. I would say if you wanted to, he's like a compassionate reformed. I would not call him a conservative reformed Christian. I would call him like a traditional reformed Christian, like Got it. Calvin, but not Piper, you know, maybe yep. something mm. like that Okay. for people who know those names. Yep. Um, he's more like a Tim Keller, um, yeah. Van, Van Hooser, for those of you who are nerds, that kind of a guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I'm more like a, I don't know, my favorite theologians just that I'm, I'm not as well versed in theology as John is, but like the, um, the Vatican II guys of, of the middle 20th century, like Carl Rahner and Edward Skilabex and, um, a lot of C.S. Lewis actually, his views are, are actually quite out of step with current American evangelicalism, but we just, we, we love his we quotes po- though. We, we love his quotes. quotes. Yeah. We <laughs> poached the quotes of, of Lewis, but actually he was, he was pretty ecumenical and open-minded um, and pretty open to, I don't know. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So meaningful unity is just like, there are a lot of kinds of Christians and it's stupid to say that your kind of Christianity is the only available option. It's just, it's patently absurd on just, by the numbers. I love that you um, said that you, you're you ch- attempting to see Christianity not as a philosophy, not as a theology, but as a family. Yeah. And that is and that is how you differentiate between, or are or, or able to sit at the kitchen table with somebody that you disagree with, but there's something that trumps that disagreement, and I use the word trumps carefully. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, one way you could put it is um, we think that our identity as members of the body of Christ is logically prior to our identity in whatever denomination or with whatever theological views we hold. Right. And uh, actually, if you, if you think that the way you understand predestination or something or the way you understand the end times or baptism or hell is more important than being an adopted and loved child of God, then I think you not only have a psychological problem, but you have like a rational problem. Hmm. Um, Whoa. So takes one to know one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of psychological and rational problems. <laughs> so the second, uh, the second principle is critical charity, and this is just basically like Aristotelian logic. Um, you just you don't build up straw men of the other person's argument or or someone you disagree with. You you uh, you're gonna you're gonna face new ideas. You're gonna hear things that make you uncomfortable, and you have to fight the urge to be defensive about that. In scientific terms, you have to like learn to quiet down your amygdala and like let your prefrontal cortex do its thing. Thank you, Science Dan. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I stole all those terms yes. from Science Mike. Yes. Um, so you you know that 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 takes a certain amount of maturity, and it's something that we're always working on. Um, so that one's that one's pretty simple. Don't make a straw man. Like, hear people out, listen to their story, have compassion. Uh, attempt to hear them clearly. I also liked, uh, I'm quoting you back to yourself because you're missing some really good stuff that you've said. Um, Okay. No, no. Have I said it? (laughs) I love it. Well, you just said you want to be both open and discerning about new ideas. So you hit the open, Mm. uh, but what's the discerning bit? I I love trying to hold those two in tension. Well, I think that it's just um, people, and I think that this is especially true um, so I think you could you could frame this sort of in terms of right and left. People on the right have a harder time being open 
generally speaking, a, a naturally conservative person will have a hard time um, accepting a new idea. I think that's just sort of like the definition of conservatism is to conserve something good that already exists. And people who are naturally liberal will tend to have a harder time uh, being critical. They will, uh, they will willingly open their arms to the stranger and to anyone who has a story that, that might, um, in which they might be a victim of some sort. And they will subsume their critical evaluation to their compassion. And uh, so we just kind of want to find that line in the middle. He's depolarizing. That, he depolarized yeah, right there. Just right there. <laughs> you know, th there really is there. I, I'm figuring out that there's so much connection between the two. Absolutely. The two shows in terms of the way I, I think about this stuff. Um, but I, yeah, that, that's one way of saying it. And of course, that doesn't mean every conservative, every liberal. I just mean, if you're tried and true liberal, you're, you're not going to have a hard time being open to ideas. In fact, you're probably like my, uh, my transsexual Muslim, you know, <laughs> arts teacher <laughs> showed me the light or whatever. I mean, like, that's the kind of thing that a true liberal would be like, hell yeah, you know? And then a conservative would be like, I don't know how to talk to that person, but you know, they need to learn to be open and they, and they are, are critical naturally. So that's one way of thinking about yep. it, but you could kind of, there's other ways. Yep. Yep. So that's the second. Nice. And then the third one is serious theology, which just basically means um, that's more like a that's probably more a, f a factor of intensity than it is like a, a value or a quality. Huh. We we just want to actually get to the bottom of questions, and so for instance, something that we don't want is just like a bunch of deconstructing Christians patting themselves on the back for for questioning the man and the empire all the time um, we also don't want a bunch of um, dogmatic conservative Christians patting themselves on the back for man sure lucked out that we have all the right answers and are going going to heaven with you know jewels galore in our crowns and man those poor sinners who don't who don't read revelation right you know so <laughs> it's we don't want to be either of those we want to we want to use our reason as much as we can to identify like separate out discrete issues and identify the real question at hand on any given topic yes mm -hmm. so what's the plan going forward how do you how do you see you i love the ends example i think that's are you going to be do, doing primarily interview shows you're going to be doing a bit of both how's that how's that going to play out yeah we have so we have three episode types two of them have guests okay. um so if we have a guest on we will either interview them on something that they know a lot about. So with ends, we asked him, what's the Bible for? Um, we have science Mike, uh, this upcoming episode. And that's the other kind of, ep of, ep of episode where he tells his story of deconstruction and reconstruction. Right. So we want to give examples of people turning the corner. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the third kind of episode is like a Q and a thing where John and I will each answer the same question or two questions or however long it takes to get to, a full episode and that's the one where we yeah we kind of dive into a topic um on our own but we show this difference of opinion and and we kind of hash it out a bit so what's the goal of reconstruction in general yep oh the goal of reconstruction is probably something like um if you believe that god exists uh it sure seems like you should make sure you have a relationship with him 
And so even if you've had to deconstruct for very legitimate reasons, like I, I believe my deconstruction has been entirely legitimate, that um, was not a result of sin in any way, I still want, I, I still lost ways of sort of like knowingly communing with God. And, you know, by losing that language or by losing those practices or those um, habits, right, I then, that was a stream through which I could go to have a relationship with God. Hmm. And so reconstruction would be to go, all right, you know, I I needed to go through this period of of pain and doubt and whatever, um, but like it, it doesn't mean that I don't still want to be with God and to be in relationship with him. Um, and, and, uh, so that's what reconstruction is. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. Right. Um, even to someone who's more skeptical about whether or not reconstruction is possible, if they've really deconstructed and they are very sort of very unsure that anything could happen, you could still say, um, it's worth a shot. I mean, it's, it's still worth, you know, like the, the person I believe the least is someone who says, yeah, you know, I went through a lot of deconstruction and I just realized that like faith is all bull crap. <laughs> I'm like, oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Like, hmm, because almost all of our heroes in human history have been religious people. So that, that seems like a, that seems like a smug claim. And so, um, and, and immature, I think, um, which doesn't mean that it's easy to reconstruct, but it, right. it sure seems worth doing. To yeah. Me. Yeah. Wow, that's really good. Yeah. What role does the church have? I mean, what part of what we've been kind of tinkering with is we started a church out of a, a podcast uh, because yeah. we felt like the church had a role, but the church has also been a trigger for a lot of deconstruction. And so right. what, where do you see that? Where do you see that fitting in? Well, you know, I kind of want to, I have, I have these few questions here that I want to ask you, and I think this might be a, a way to turn one around. Um, I was talking with, <laughs> I was, I want to, <laughs> I'd like to answer your question with a question. Um, Ooh, Jesus. Well, I'll, I'll just say for me, so I was speaking with Andy um, yesterday and we were just kind of doing some, some, I was getting some more background information so I could know what I'd like to ask you about. And, and he mentioned that your guys' church is Eucharist centered. That was the term that he used. Yeah. You like two word things. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I'm all about hyphens. Cent- centeredly. Um, so, so for me, uh, as someone who's kind of moving toward the Catholic Church, and I've been attending a liturgical church for eight years now, um, a Presbyterian church, and um, for me, the, the sacraments really are becoming increasingly central to to the way that I understand my faith. Yeah, and so that's one answer would be. You know, sacraments can't happen alone. Yeah. The sacraments, um, I'm trying to think through them. I don't think any of them happen alone. Anointing of the sick, marriage, Eucharist, confession. These are all, there's probably more. Uh, baptism, none of, these are, none of these are done alone. Right. Um, and I think that there's some good thinking hmm. behind that, the yeah. design or yeah. whatever you want yeah. to call it. Yeah, I didn't think so, about it that way. Yeah, so... You could think sacraments or you could just say um, human beings, like if you want a more kind of secular approved answer, human beings are pack animals. Like we are tribal pack animals. We uh, survived as a species because we could band together and hunt big game. Um, We have done everything in tribes since 
we came on the Earth's scene. And even if you don't believe in evolution, uh, it's obviously true. We're tribal sports teams, right, um, right. political parties, family clans, you know, like Hatfields and McCoys in Kentucky and uh, Catholics and Protestants and Irish. Yeah, politics. I mean, um, in Irish in Ireland. Uh, <laughs> So, like, you just, no human endeavor really worth doing is done alone, and that's kind of contrary to the frontier myth of America, America. but I, I think mm. that, um, so I would say that, but now let me turn it into a question. <laughs> Why, what do you guys mean by your, your service is Eucharist-centered? Like, what does that actually mean, and then why do you make it that way? Yeah. Ooh. Um... Well, partially for the reasons you've already articulated, um, I come out of a megachurch, evangelical, sermon-centered, teaching-focused um, uh, subculture. And so yeah. I've always been that the, the teacher and the service pretty much is a setup and a response to the teaching. And when we started podcasting, we, you know, we realized uh, a church I was just at you know, a couple of years ago was $9 million budget, 120 employees, 20 acres of land. And we'd probably reach, um, nine, 9,000 different people a month. You know, it's a big church. Um, we started podcasting and you know, when you're, when you're seeing 40 or 50,000 downloads a month and it's free, um, <laughs> you, you realize if church yeah is only an informational dispensation system, then why in the world would you invest in land, invest in, in employees, invest in programs? Because the podcasting, it's, it's, it's what Uber's done, it's what Airbnb has done, right? We're right. flipping the, the classroom completely. So if, if you take the importance of the teaching event out of a church service, which is what the question we were asking, what do you have? And we, you, have the, you have liturgy. You have the work of right. the people in response. And so we, we do Q&A as part of our services. We do uh, kind of raw storytelling. We don't, not, no pretty red bows, at least, uh, at least in the stories we tell. Um, we do a bit of teaching, but that teaching is to set up Eucharist. We see that, we see the point of the service is the, is the taking the bread and the cup together. And then we have other, we have a prayer, we have prayer stations and. Okay. Why though? Why is that? Why is taking the Eucharist the center? Because we're trying to build a community, uh, like Jesus did, where you can have a tax collector and you can have a zealot. And they're there. They're, if you're only, if you're only locating unity in preference one, you know, I like this teacher. Yeah or affinity, right? I, this, this church is just like me, which is traditionally how my subculture's done it. Um, yeah. It cannot withstand the, the cultural conversations that are being had around it. You can't have, yeah. so, so our goal is to have affirming Christians and non-affirming Christians take the bread and the cup together. Our, our goal is to have Trump lovers and Trump haters take the bread and the cup together. Our goal is to have um, people who are as far left and as far right politically or economically or whatever take the bread in the cup and that's the only thing big enough to handle those differences in our culture teachings yeah. not big enough affinities not big enough uh preferences aren't big enough and so so that was i mean that was the big reason was um it, it, none of the traditions i've come out of ever did eucharist every every week it was always a tiny bit of juice and a in a you know tic tac size once cracker. a month yeah yeah right. exactly right. Oh, let's yeah, not forget that this was something jesus did <laughs> right right exactly <laughs> yeah so 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 that was the i love that answer that's a, that's 
Yeah, I mean that's that's been really my experience. Like you know, when I go to Mass, uh, even in Seattle, which is not a very diverse city as far as American cities go, like it's always racially diverse. It's always a diverse number of age groups. Right. And everybody, the the homily is just not the point. Right. On a weekday Mass, it's five minutes long. On Sunday, it's twelve minutes. Wow. And then you spend twenty minutes on the Eucharist. I mean, right. so you it's all everyone preparing themselves for the same thing. Going up, taking it together. A little Filipino w- old woman is like handing me the wine or whatever. Yep, yep, you yep. know, like, right. like it's it. You can't escape it. It's like baked in yeah. that this is not about. Oh, everyone here also gets their haircut at the cool barber shop, right? And mm-hmm. like drinks at the same bars with right. me. Exactly. Right. It can yeah. never be about that because they're not cool. Right. The people you're <laughs> sitting next to. Yeah. Exactly. Nope. Exactly. And so we felt like Eucharist was the only thing big enough, you know, and, and because we built the whole church around yeah. table fellowship, the idea of table fellowship. So we celebrate table in three ways. We celebrate table corporately um, via communion. We do these things called table fellowships that are just dinner dinner and conversation. We do those in kind of in lieu of small groups and Bible okay. studies. Um, and, uh, and then our encouragement always is that you're opening your personal table, your personal table up to um, your friends, your neighbors, people not like you. So for us, it's part of an even bigger picture of Jesus welcoming the outcast and the stranger, Jesus eating at a religious person's house. I mean, it captures, we think, one of the most distinctive parts of American or distinctive parts of Jesus' work that is different than what the American church sort of represents and operates in. Right. Like that, I mean, when that Heineken commercial recently dropped, for us, we were like, this is the exact picture of what we're talking about. But I didn't watch it. No, okay. I, um, I I enjoyed watching the Pepsi ad many times, <laughs> <laughs> replaying it for friends with commentary. Oh, but man. I didn't watch the Heineken one. Yeah. Um. So that that makes me think about something that I've been thinking about a lot, and I wonder what you think about it. I'm trying to, in my mind, tie tie this all into identity because I think both in like identity politics is a is a yeah. big catchphrase these days. Like, which in case people don't know what that is, it's like primarily you're a white man or primarily you are a person of color you are a trans person um and then sort of mainly grouping people and and judging them based on their category and um i've been thinking a lot about christian identity and what does christian identity mean and so what i was thinking of when you were talking is let's say i go to my um you know suburban Boise sort of white bread mega church right okay and everyone around me like lives in uh, almost everyone who goes there lives in sort of planned communities with yards and and lawns and SUVs and everybody is white and um, everybody shares the view of baptism and all, all these views, right? And and we're not gay affirming. I'm just kind of picking a he- uh, an example out of my head. Yeah. Right. Then you could legitimately, if you were a sociologist, you could go into that setting and you could do some testing. And I bet you would find that people's identity was partially shaped by all those things that they had in common. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have That's instead a church full of people of diverse views and socioeconomic backgrounds and races and whatever. And if you try and make the Eucharist the center, then what I think has to happen, what ends up happening is the message you give your congregants 
is that your identity is in the Eucharist. Correct. Your identity is not in That's your right. shared That's right. cultural yeah. exactly. norms or whatever. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And you can frame that any number of different ways. One of the things we try to say all the time is um, this the, the church should be a picture of the new humanity, right? And Paul's use of that phrase was in the context of people who have nothing else in common but this Jesus. And yeah. um, and so, you know, a, a, a small group of committed, same stage in life, white people, married couples with young kids is beautiful and helpful, but that's not the new, human, new humanity. So, yeah. so I absolutely agree uh, with what you're saying. And, you know, you can frame it in terms of none of us come worthy. You know, this is where all of our other identities are relativized mm -hmm. and subsumed under the identity of Christ uh, in us, through us, with us. It's also it also gives us the great opportunity to be reminded of our job description as followers of Jesus. We're to reenact this in in the death to selves and being broken and poured out, you know, for the sake of of others as well. And so it, it gives yeah. us a lot of, you know, it's it's like like you spending twenty minutes on it. There's a lot to say there. Um, you can spend fifty two yeah. weeks a year just talking about what this means and what this is and how this. Uh, affects us, and so yeah. uh, totally, totally think that is a um, a, a good point in um, and why we would do it. So I'll add that to my future answers. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Solid. I wonder what you think when people ask me. This is what I say if people ask me why does it matter to have the Eucharist at the center of the service, and my kind of go to answer is a little more abstract, and it's that I think that the self giving, self sacrificial love of God is at the center of the universe. Come on. And that is most clearly shown in the in Christ's death, basically, uh, which the Eucharist is is the is <laughs> the sacrament yeah. that he sets up right. for that, right? right? He's about to willingly accept it. You know, it, during Catholic Mass it's like, you know, he willingly uh accepted his passion and um so I just kind of think that having the Eucharist at the middle of a service is a is a representative of the actual way the universe is. I like that. And mm. so I like to be reminded, and it's sort of like, at what point in my life will I stop being needing to be reminded that self-sacrificial love is at the center of everything? Probably never. <laughs> right. Um, and for me, once a month is certainly not enough to be reminded of that. And mm. uh, yeah. yeah, so that's, yeah. I don't know, what do you think about that? Does that jive? Oh, I mean, I that jives with me i mean i it, it it i think both both concepts intersect rather beautifully you know there, yeah. there's a lot of us who come come through eucharist i mean that's kind of how i grew up in communion it's funny i think about it i mean the the small church i grew up in we did actually do eucharist and communion every single weekend the funny thing was i mean it was like but church was like three hours long you know it was like yeah. there was a you know a teaching for communion and then an additional like you know teaching after the fact and that's where they split the church and then kids would go off and do their thing and and that kind of thing there so it's a funny way like i constantly grew up with you know hinged on the symbolism of communion kind of in my regular and, and daily street sweeper yeah street sweeper sorry uh if you can hear that that's okay yeah of of life and so but i think i've always carried the heavy symbolism like really hinging on exactly what you said just the atonement of life of this is what jesus did and this is just really fascinating sacrament to really engage with that and be reminded and remembered of that and yeah i think it it deeply affects the the way you walk through life when you have more of that consistent reminder of like that's if that's truly a picture of how to walk as a a follower to be that self-sacrificial to be that um 
we had to be that humble, but also be that intentional, you know, that God like had a plan and God had, you know, yeah. something going on there and to realize, no, God had a plan in working through that. And some may, you know, more metaphorically look at, you know, the sacrifice and how it then backbones into Old Testament and all of the priestly, you know, uh, things that they did. But I'm, I'm actually always struck by, you know, the, the thousands of years of Old Testament, you know, tradition and oral communication about what sacrifice would end up looking like and then how Jesus uh, you see this incredible alignment and picture of that thing so I mean to me I I, I personally always stand in awe of I think the uh, the circumstantial alignment of God's plan and what actually took place here on earth and so I to me I connect with that very large Cosmo idea of it <laughs> I yeah. uh, I um you know I like how you say that self-giving love is at the center of the universe is very Rob Bell-esque um, oh, is it? Oh, yes. <laughs> I better be careful. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> I don't want to get farewelled by John Piper. Oh, I know. Well, if he was over it's here... It's only a matter of time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's only a matter of followers, I should say. <laughs> get enough followers, I'll get that. We, um, uh, so one of the... I, I'd put that just a little differently, I, I, although... To me, Francis Chan had this great line once. I heard him speaking and he said, you know, if, if you're at a church and you hear more about the pastor than you do about Jesus, you're probably at the wrong church. And and I yeah, know that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean he's he's just the the king of those sort of drop the mic <laughs> one liner. Yeah. And and so I was trying to think of a way of how do you put Jesus at the center uh, of the service and uh, not, you know, my teaching or someone's worship or whatever. And so, you know, we realized, well, we always want to teach about Jesus. So we're always going to, you know, be in the Gospels. We're not going to go to Paul. We're just going to stay in in Jesus. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. I mean, we'll do other stuff on the podcast. And, you know, I mean, Tim Keller's got some great stuff. And N.T. Wright's got some great stuff. So if you're hungry for that. And, and, and where Paul and Jesus intersect, of course. But we're just going to be marinating in Jesus and how beautiful he is. And um, because we believe, you know, we're preaching to a parade. You're not preaching to the same audience every time. Um, and and yeah. so, so we also wanted to, um, and Eucharist obviously gives you the opportunity to have that conversation, to be good news people, to to remind us of all the things right that 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 Jesus reminds us of through a sacrifice. So for me, that's the way we put Jesus at the center. Is all of a sudden all the other conversation stops about whether I liked it, whether I didn't like it, was that song good or not good. Now it's. Oh, now we're doing something that is a huge reminder that it's not about us and it's not about anything right. else that's going on here. Right. So, yeah. so when I get asked that, I, I'm, I'm, I take that self-giving love and just attach, you know, the Jesus name to it and go, man, he's, he's the whole thing. Yeah. And you know, there's, I wonder what you guys think about this too, in the context of deconstruction and reconstruction. I think the thing about Eucharist too is it's it's tremendously flexible because it is an activity yeah. mm -hmm. and it That's is good. not I mean there are sort of doctrines attached to it right. but it is like an aesthetic activity and I think about like think about someone who's like super deconstructed and they they're like yeah probably no resurrection um you know barely even like a theist of any sort just simply the Eucharist is a reminder that God suffers. Mm. God is not out there totally separate from us. He feels pain. Yep. He felt pain. Even if it's like, if that's all you can do at this point in your life, you can just sit there and meditate on a God who suffers in some way that can change someone's life. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. that can yeah. be a bridge back to something more, 
um, or not, or if it's all they can ever do. If it's all anybody could ever do is like sit there once a week and be reminded that like the God that they kind of believe in suffers alongside with them. Like that is so valuable. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, but we've and often true. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, please continue. No, that's it. Yeah, I'm done. I was just going to say. So often, in the, in, in the great irony in my tradition is that we've restricted communion to only those who are worthy of it. You know. So yeah. so we you know we we have to warn non Christians. Um, we've got to. I mean, I literally sat in a pass or sat in a, a church service, um, and the pastor said, "You got to get cleaned up first. And, you know, I mean, I'm just hmm. about ready to throw a fit, right? So we practice open communion, which is very controversial in our subculture. Um, yeah. uh, although we see no biblical warrant for, you know, excluding anybody, uh, except in Paul's particular cir- circumstance where rich Christians were eating separately from poor Christians. That's what he condemns. And he doesn't warn non-Christians from taking communion. He warns Christians from taking communion. So it was a social, it was a justice issue that he was addressing there. So yeah. all that is to say, we the, the other reason we take Eucharist is because it, it, for us, not for everybody, but for us, it embodies the wide open call to, to share a table with Jesus, right? It's the it's the tax collector, prostitute, you know, Pharisee, all are welcome at the table kind of thing. And um, I think for a lot of people raised in, you know, the kind of evangelical environments like myself, communion was this great thing that you had to uh you had to get cleaned up for and so your point about the deconstructed person sitting there you know do they have the right amount of faith and doctrine and obedience to come up and 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 at what point would you say okay um they're good enough um i just i i i think the eucharist um and again i mean catholic uh, theologians would disagree and some of my own tribe would hugely disagree with some of these things um, but I think it, it gives people the opportunity to come with whatever faith they're bringing and be received at the table. And yeah. so so I think that embodies something that nothing else does in our church practices. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know yet. I don't know yet how I feel about because, you know, I am. I know. I am kind of. I know. Veering Catholic. And but and that's one of the things I struggle with is like open, you know, the open table of the Episcopal Church, which is like any Christian right um, you know come up I, I'm I am very much more drawn toward that line of thinking but I'm just kind of yeah I'm withholding judgment on it for the time being I want to ask you about um, you mentioned this having people who are affirming and non-affirming I assume you mean of gay marriage yes or of of, of uh, monogamous homosexual unions or whatever correct um, I have always thought that that would be impossible. And let me just sort of say why. And then I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Okay. My thoughts have been that you can't have a church that rides the line between affirming and non-affirming because the people who are non-affirming would like, because to me, it seems like um, really the, the question of, of homosexual sex or gay marriage really gets to the core of the Bible. Uh, is it inerrant, basically? Um, do we have to find a way to make sense of everything that Paul believed? Or do we not have to do that because of reasons X, Y, and Z? Um, that That's my sort of take on it. Yeah. Um, just from my own study. And uh, so therefore, if that's true, then you have the people who are not affirming are like, Look, I mean, I love what you're trying to do, Mike. It's great that you want to have an open thing. And yes, we're all 
members of the body of Christ even, but like I believe the Bible is inerrant. And so I want to be somewhere where people believe that. And then on the other hand, if you are affirming or especially if you're gay, you're you're just like if you could choose between a church that totally is open to you and affirms you and a church where you know the pastor maybe does he doesn't really say exactly and half the people there don't like i if i were gay i think i would just totally be an episcopal like no question (laughs) right uh i mean as long as obviously they're individuals and maybe they don't like other things about the episcopal church but you know, I, I would think that I would want to just go somewhere that I was accepted. And so when Andy mentioned that you guys tried to do this and then you mentioned it here on the inter- in the interview, I that really uh, is fascinating to me. So I, I kind of want to hear you yeah. respond to that and, and see talk about how you do it. Yeah, well, we spent, uh, we've done a lot of work on it on our podcast. So we've spent um, a lot of time trying to do the depolarized thing, right? If Jesus would come... Yeah. And speak to us about this. He would confront both sides of the issue. What would he confront? Um, nobody, nobody walks into the presence of Jesus and um, doesn't come out with with some renewal. You know, some piece of this needs to change. Some awakening. Um, it, yeah, Anthony Bloom, the Orthodox yep. priest, writes that every in every encounter with the real God is simultaneously a judgment. And and some a love fest. <laughs> yeah, and he doesn't mean judgment like uh, you know, Jonathan Edwards yeah, yeah, yeah. Brimstone. Okay. Okay, he just means like you he's talking about prayer. He's talking about contemplative prayer and he's like, you know, you can't go into God's presence and not expect to like have some aspect of you be confronted with something mm. bigger and better. Exactly. And more yeah. just. Exactly. Yes, Her, that's totally. which, so well said. Does not necessarily assume the rightness or wrongness of of homosexual sex, but right. the point just being something. Right, love will challenge you. However you want to phrase yeah. it. So, right. so what Pure we tell love, what yeah. we tell people is we're never going to be an affirming church. We're never going to be a non-affirming church. We're not in that business. We're in the business of putting Jesus at the center and allowing Him to order the sanctification of His followers. So everybody hates you then. Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's that's absolutely yeah. true. We've got plenty of sides, examples. Yeah. But but here's yeah. the here's the fascinating thing. So yes, I get emails and articles and um, all sorts of things from both sides. We've had, um, but but we've had a significant number of people who are either affirming or gay themselves say that we're glad you're not an affirming church because a lot of affirming churches make their affirmingness the point of the church and what they were yeah. interested in was something that pointed to Jesus and that and, and that relativized that issue so to me the analogy i always draw is divorce right jesus speaks clearly on divorce and what the american church did with divorce is they just created a kind of don't ask don't tell policy and yep. and we just don't we don't deal with it um, uh, and I thought, well, that hypocrisy, of course, needs to be repented of. So if we're gonna, if we're going to go after, we're going to go after gay folks, then you've got to be consistent in all the other, all your other sexual ethic practices, disciplines, leadership, not leadership, and nobody is. The only thing that was consistent was this kind of don't ask, don't tell sort of policy in large churches because it's too big to manage. And tons of divorced like elders and absolutely. deacons, like yeah. everywhere yes. you look. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And Which should have totally disqualified them from Paul's life. Yes. Yes. And yep. and in some conservative churches, that's been true. But in my tribe, that, yeah. that's not as true. Or maybe it's true for a very narrow band of people. 
Yeah. Um, it strikes me really quickly that you could go two ways with that. Yep. One way is what sounds like you're saying, which is you can go the way of consistency yep. and sticking with the text. And the other way is you could go uh, the way of, you know what? The fact that we've never done this on divorce or women speaking aloud in church or head coverings is actually, actually points to a larger uh, pattern or truth yes. that, in fact, the Bible is not inerrant and we're sort of reading it wrong. Um, and well, there's I think probably you can some, say I think you can yeah. say you're reading it wrong and still say it's inspired. I think I'm not saying it's not inspired. Okay, okay. Um, you're not. Using uh, I think there's a yeah. I don't use inerrant and inspired as synonyms. Okay. I think they're definitely different. Okay. Um, for instance, even the Catholic, Episcopal, and Eastern Orthodox churches all would define inerrancy as uh, the infallibility, which is that the Bible always accomplishes its aims yeah. as relates to salvation of a soul. Yeah. Hmm. Um, which is very different than like the Chicago statement totally. of inerrancy, totally. for instance. Yes. So I, I, it strikes me though, you can go two ways. So the way that I tend to go is like, Oh, we totally don't think Peter was right about slavery. We totally don't think Paul was right about divorce or we think divorce is different now than it was then or something. And these are like signposts to the fact that, Oh, like maybe we're not, Maybe this is not a rule book. Uh, maybe it is an example of the church, like trying to love God as time goes along. But you could also go the route you're going or like where I think Greg Boyd kind of goes this route of like, hey, we have to really be we just really have to be consistent here if we're going to use this as our normative text. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And and yeah. but the, the interesting part was when we were getting affirmed for being out of the affirming or non-affirming yeah, business yeah. from from gay folks. And so, yes, I think there are some, and we've had some people confront us and, and leave because I've just not said, hey, yes, of course, we're affirming. Um, but we've had this very interesting community build up of people who are non-affirming and people who are affirming, and they're in line together for the Eucharist. And, and do you allow gay or LGBTQ people to, like, serve? Yeah. And lead, yeah. Okay, but so, but we do it. But we do it. Too. But we do it based on their heart for for God and their heart for Jesus. Right. We don't do it based on. I mean, we we would disqualify um, all sorts of people from leadership. Like there, we have we have some folks in our community that are very aggressive, and um, and you know we have we would take a different approach with them. In the same way, if you had somebody who was just gonna who was just gonna pick at us and, you know, crusade against uh, gay people. I mean, we, we wouldn't give them the time of day. So we're very interested in peacemaking, right. not peacekeeping, yeah. which is a far different thing, as you know. And peacemaking requires people to live in this tension. So so do, do, the, do the LGBTQ folks in our community have to give something? Absolutely, they do. You're pointing that out. But so do the, so do the non-affirming folks. They have to give something, too. And right, like for instance, if there is a lesbian teaching their children Sunday school, they have to be okay with that. Right. Or, or, you know, one of the things we do when we um, recruit for uh, positions in our church, you know, we, we say, listen, if, if our target audience are pre- and post-Christians, um, for us, you can't have a flinch factor. You, you can't, you know, if two dads show up with a kid, and so we actually have to de-church some of our folks to say, yeah. we're going to treat them, unless you're interviewing the divorced mom, um, uh, then we're going to treat right. them the way that we treat everybody else, which is they're welcome and they're welcome at the table. Interesting. And, and we yeah. found, we found a very eclectic tribe willing to live in that. Yeah. 
and and that's wow. bro i just think i i think it's remarkable but a pod the podcast has done a lot of that work for us so it's not so you're, yeah. you're the people who've been with us know kind of where we're we're what we're trying to get at we're not trying to be wishy-washy i have an i have a definite opinion on the issue um i've spoken a lot about sexuality but but we just think this is this is one of those things where enough really good intelligent God-fearing Christian people are disagreeing on this that um, at, at some point you have to make room for the disagreement around the table, you know? And the analogy of, you know, if one of my three kids um, was gay, I mean, what do you do? Do you, do you cut them off? No, we're family. You know, we sit at the table, we hash it out, we disagree, we, you know, I mean, whatever it is, um, but we stay family right. together. So, so that's been an interesting part of our journey has been, um, you know, again, and back to the, how the Eucharist can hold some of these disagreements in ways that a teaching can't or personality can't or preferences can't. So that's what that's, we're learning just so much in this space because we don't have a lot of, we don't have a lot of um, other communities and, yeah, we're looking at right. uh, to try to, to, to make this up. But, but our folks have been amazing, particularly from the LGBTQ community who, you know, it would be much easier just to not, you know, to skip that part and uh, mm -hmm. to just go to affirming churches. So it's been it's been good. Anything you want to add? Uh, no, I don't have anything to add to that. I mean, it, that's it, like you said that. Well, now I'm adding. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, that's been the walk, you know, going into this when we first I mean, I, it must have been like month two going into this. And we sat down and like, I don't know. What should we do? And we were like what did we really were like what did jesus do you know it's like he didn't say prop eight yes prop eight no you know he didn't say affirming non-affirming and obviously it's right. kind of some of the affirming argument is like, well jesus never talked about it but you don't use that then to be affirming you know it's rather than like well no we walk into it where it's like we talk about both we don't That's discount right. them we just talk about both and can you critique both right can you critique both sides? And obviously both sides need critiqued, right? Yeah. So Jesus wouldn't come. I mean, it's exactly what you said about Father Bloom or... or um, yeah, Anthony Bloom. Anthony yeah. Bloom. Um, that, that idea that nobody, we come into the ravishing love of God and nobody escapes without something. And so we're just not going to prioritize because uh, I've just learned, I mean, you get people into the sphere of the spirit of God, the community of God, the word of God and, and the sacraments, who knows what God's going to do, right? We just don't order their sanctification for them. So, um, there's so much, there's so much going on in my sanctification. I, I have hardly, you know, any room left over to worry about anyone else's. So it's D Dan, yeah. it's been an interesting thing because we are trying to depolarize and reconstruct in this space yeah. very, very tangibly, um, around some of these issues, women in leadership, right? We let women preach and, and women, um, lead in all capacities. And see, that's, that's interesting. That strikes me as an issue. You can't you can't withhold on like you can with affirmation. Yes. Right. Yeah. You, you, you couldn't, you couldn't have a private view that God did not want women to, to preach and then let them like that would be, you'd be being, uh, untrue to yourself or your convictions if you did that. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's interesting. That's, that's one where you just sort of had to yep. make a call. Yes, exactly. Yeah. For the community. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Whereas this one, we don't yeah. make a call for the community. Yeah, yeah right. you got it. And, and, and that's a tough, you know, that's a tough because we're held accountable 
for our leadership of the community. So what calls, you know, so you either overpack it or underpack it. Um, you overpack so many doctrines that you become a fence, you know, a fenced in organization. Our view is, no, no, we want to be center focused and we want to, you know, the, uh, the old analogy is that you either can keep cattle in by building a fence or by building a well. And so, yeah. and so we, right. we want to be well builders. So we're just, we're just marinating in Jesus. And the thing that's so funny, Dan, is our people are incredibly responsive and they write, we have this prayer wall and they put like prayer thoughts, requests, comments in and, and the stuff that God's doing in them without us having to talk about it has just been remarkable because we're not a big, like here are three applications, you know, for this week, or, mm -hmm. you know, um, here's what you do next or how we don't ask the how to questions. We just ask the, man, here, here's how beautiful Jesus is sort of thing. And it's, it's been remarkable what, what God's doing in people without us having to lead and shape the community beyond the, the well yeah, that we're crazy. building. Yeah. It's almost like if you take penicillin, uh, your infections end up going away. It's amazing. <laughs> and and like if you treat like the root cause, if you treat the root cause, the symptoms go away on their, like that just, your body works that way, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's but if you just take ibuprofen for your headache, but you have your, or your throbbing finger, which is throbbing because of an infection, yeah. right. the ibuprofen is not going to actually take it away. Right. Correct. Like Mike, Mike has a, an interesting articulation. Like he does this in conversations and counseling of just identifying the difference between, you know, what's symptom and then what's the thing behind the thing, you know, and right. he quickly often when he identifies like, well, that's symptomatic. So it's just, but, but quickly calling that stuff out immediately kind of compels you to think, okay, if this is a, if my behavior is a symptom, then what is really the heart posture? What is really the orientation that I'm stuck in that's causing that to happen? Like, you know, we've kind of been really, um, hard on the idea that like, you know, faith following isn't behavior management, you know, and us just figuring out 10 ways to solve your anxiety, right. you know, and that kind of going at that kind of right. step. But rather if like, if Jesus truly is this reorienting cure all, then why, why are we um, so slow to be excited to actually talk about how radical, how contrary and how amazing and beautiful he was every single weekend for the rest of our, you know, life. It just, to right. me, it seems like well, we, you know, anyways, we, we try to distinguish yeah. between the gospel of Paul and the gospel of Jesus. Yeah. At least the way it's presented, Paul and Jesus preach the same thing um, to radically different audiences, but it's been so interpreted through the Reformation. And this is where John and I would go round and round, right? About, um, yeah. uh, you know, the Paul that we've got isn't the Paul that was Paul. Um, uh, but we've been handed a gospel of Paul that most naturally leads us to talk about what happens after we die. Whereas the gospel of Jesus hardly mentioned it. Um, well, you and John, John's more of a, uh, NT right new perspective guy. So you oh, might he not is. disagree okay, good, as good, much. Good. Yeah, okay. Okay. As you think. Okay. Fantastic. Cause I think yeah. that's been the gift of those guys has been to say, yeah. Hey, Paul was a lot more Jesus-y than I think anyone realized. And a lot mm -hmm. more Jewish. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's, yes, yeah. that's what I mean. Um, so anyway, man, it's been, it's been an interesting journey for us. And so when we find people like you who are trying to occupy that same space, um, who are honest about their own biases and are willing to be critiqued in the same way we're critiquing everything else, I think that's a really refreshing thing. That's why we wanted to, to talk to you and... Well, I appreciate that, but it's easier to do it about politics on a podcast than it is week in, week out in a church setting where people <laughs> people feel like their very souls are on the line. Yeah. Right, right, right. But but yet, I feel like we couldn't do the podcast without that. 
Like it's just too easy to take shots at the failures of the church. Um, with politics, man, you could totally do that. I, I, I would have no problem, you know, sitting in you a don't, room. You don't. You're not saying that I need to run for office. <laughs> oh, I t- <laughs> in order to be, in order to have a clear conscience. Correct. Right. Correct. Although I think it's more open to you now than it ever has been. I think the bar is so low. Oh, gosh. That, um, <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. You know, Dwayne Johnson is good news for us. Speaking of the bar being low, I'd really like to talk about um, white evangelicals and Trump. Uh, from both of our perspectives. Okay, good. Yeah. Can I? I got to pee though, really quick. Do it. <laughs> okay. we'll, we'll, I'll be two. I'll be one minute. Okay. He's he's drinking. He's drinking coffee, and he's in Seattle, and oh, so yeah. we're just gonna kill some time. Yeah. So um, ducks one. Oh boy, <laughs> that is killing some time. Absolutely. Oh my word. So uh, brothers and sisters, you know, we wanted you to introduce, we wanted you to be introduced to Dan, to the Reconstruct podcast, because we know some of you are living in that space. Depolarize was really interesting. Who else has he had on Depolarize? Do you remember? Because you listened to, I think. Yeah, I've listened to it a bunch. You know, I'm not going to be able to drop names because a lot of them are political figures that that are in a lot of different political parties. But I think Dan's done such a fantastic job of bringing people from both sides of the field and bringing compelling conversations. And, And likewise, Dan's done a great job of kind of sitting in the middle and pushing back like and dan's kind of approach hasn't been like well how do i'm going to be an independent and push back it's right. just like there's some moderate middle ground here where we we must find some kind of commonplace on what to do with this country but how do we how what do we find terms on agreement yes um and so he's he, I've, I've really respected that that's the posture that he sat in and so yeah. hey look he's back oh whoa hey there whoa did you wash <laughs> no. Okay. All right. Excellent. I know what I touched. Right. I exactly. Know. Right. I know. I know when I took a shower. Um, <laughs> do you guys have time to do another? Absolutely. F- uh, Fifteen yeah. minutes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I got to go a little after eleven thirty. Um. So, white evangelicals and Donald Trump. Um, that's probably the, the single biggest yeah. statistic that speaks to where American Christianity is at of the last five years. I would, I would say the, that 81% number. And uh, we talk about it um, a fair amount on Depolarize, just if it comes up with people of faith. Um, but I'm really curious what your guys' experience has been, because you're trying to have this middle community, um, and you come from... You know, you guys, you're like in Ronald Reagan land, Orange County evangelicalism. <laughs> That's changing. Um, but it's still, it still is true. At least in our, in the evangelical subculture, it's predominantly conservative. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and especially the baby boomer generation. Yes. I yeah. imagine yes. it's still very much that, that kind of mindset. Um, so, what like, how has Trump's when that number came out, which is um, exit polls, right, the next day, so November 9th or whatever. Um, we've had four or five months with that number now, uh, maybe six. Yeah. What has been the conversation amongst your podcast listeners or the members of your church? Um, just, I just, I'm interested. Yeah. Andy, you want to lead off? Uh, all right. I don't know. I mean, I could, I could say that the, the conversations we've introduced as far as, um speaking to that scene we've come from um it's 
we've seen like, tons of activity on both sides. You know, I mean, as far as if we look at our Facebook comments and things Mike has said on Twitter, I mean, it's people accusing us of drinking the liberal Kool-Aid to, you know, libtards to, and immediately it's, it's all the false dichotomy yeah. type of stuff. The second you bring up a conversation that, that demands it, you're suddenly you're accused of an identity. You know, and so it's like that's I think what's been fascinating for us is seeing is actually maybe the illumination of seeing how much that identity has played such a large role in how people see um, their morals play out. At least for me, I think that's that's what I've seen, like not so much seeing I've kind of looked past the fact that, okay, you're for Trump. But then realizing how much more of your identity is wrapped up in all the stuff around that that isn't really playing through in your Jesus following. And that's been the more that's compelling it. conversation for me. Yeah, that's the conversation. Yeah. Is that people have been so wrapped up in politics that they're willing to compromise the beauty of Jesus uh, to make their point. So, so for you find that on the right and the left? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Totally. So, can you give me an example of each? Sure. Um, so we you don't have to name names if you don't want to. <laughs> oh no no no. Um, so we take questions in. Um, every people text whatever. I mean anything they hear in a teaching, anything they're singing. And um, so right after the election, we got a bunch of um, anti-Trump questions. And so we did a whole, and then and then we got some immigration questions. So I did a whole teaching on immigration. We had some people walk out. You know, blah blah blah. Um, so I, I was confronted by somebody who um, loves Trump and um, felt like I wasn't being fair to her side and and um, because I was airing those questions, but the Trump supporters didn't have questions, so I was only airing the concerns about Trump uh, right, in the right. community. I wasn't doing both sides uh, justice. Uh, there weren't a whole lot of questions to the pastor like after Obama got reelected by Obama voters. Correct, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. those are not the people moving to Canada and right. worried. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So, so, uh, but there was this sensitivity to the fact that it felt like something was being advocated from stage, and this person felt comfortable enough to come up and say, "Hey, man, this is. I, I wish you just frame this a little differently." Um, and so, I thought that was a really interesting. Uh, dynamic that went on in our community. Um, I even had, we had a dear friend um, resign uh, from our board because um, I was I was being critical of the evangelicals' support of Trump. I was just saying, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites, right? Hillary's got character flaws, but Trump's okay, and he's God's candidate. And so I was just throwing a fit, and we lost, and we were mm. getting so much blowback on social media and name-calling and all of this sort of thing. And I wasn't even critiquing Trump. I was just critiquing the fact that here were a bunch of evangelicals saying this is God's candidate and then critiquing Hillary yeah. for character flaws. Uh, I just thought that was a, a fascinating yeah. sort of thing. So, right. so we saw it, it, we saw it in both directions. We saw the community trying to hang together where people were asking questions legitimately. How do I, I'm fearful. How do I live in this? Um, yeah. And then the the Trump supporters in the room going, "Hey, the, what you know? Wh why do you why are you giving this so much airtime?" So what was fascinating was that the point that really began to stick in the community was the fact that our politics had become more important. So so for instance, on social media, you see the left and the right flaming each other, um, 
on a Christian post in Christ's name with scripture. And you, you know, I wasn't moderating. I just throw something out and then I just check back in later. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and so we saw this ugliness, right. That everyone has seen yeah. on social media towards each other, where, where the exact thing the Eucharist was supposed to remind us of has been pushed away. And instead now my rightness or wrongness about how the kingdom of the world should be run has now taken over my unity with a brother or sister of a different, uh, belief about how the kingdom of the world should be run. And so that was right. the thing that got a, a huge amount of traction uh, in our community and in the podcast was we kept coming at the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking and how you, you like around Thanksgiving, how do you share a meal with somebody that you passionately do not agree with? Right. So it, it's been, it, it's been another test case like the LGBTQ community of whether or not this actually is, it can be held together in this sort of depolarized, you know, reconstructed space. You know, earlier you were talking about um, when Jesus was alive, eating with a Pharisee or a zealot and a tax collector. And it, it struck me that like, that's kind of like an ACLU lawyer and an, and an immigration agent. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Today. Yes. And if, and like, what a vision for the kingdom of God that you could be at table and have those people could could come to the table and and speak about how they each might do their jobs most effectively. Yes. Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh. That's, like see that's the new humanity. Agents who, yeah, like immigration agents who don't <clears throat> aren't like working through subsumed anger issues and taking it out on the poor and lawyers who are uh, compassionate for for those that they are even suing, right? And 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 seeing it through their eyes, and and then even more effectively representing their clients as a result of that. I mean, it's it's hard to kind of get all that stuff in your mind, but I bet you there are ICE agents and lawyers who are friends and do do this. Yep. It's not like it doesn't exist in the world. That's in right. fact, cop shows are always about you know the <laughs> the DA and the defense lawyers are actually getting drinks with each other at the end of the night. Um, there's a bit more of a moral heft here, but uh, it can happen. And shouldn't it be the church where it happens? That's yes. It. And and the Eucharist and, and sort of the this is where I where I want to talk about identity. You know, our identity right. as loved children of God should be able to overrule our political and and even like our cultural and social identities. That's right. Uh, but it's difficult, and those identities are in there they're yeah. in their good yes right? and we we spend a lot of mental energy to defend against them being changed or challenged that's right mm -hmm. yep all of us do that's right right so so the psychology of how you hold belief i mean everything you were referencing early that comes into play here and and so for us you know you could whoa come here honey that's my cat lola <laughs> oh my of course he has a cat <laughs> yeah she's She's kind of, I don't know. She kind of whines a lot. No, she's great though. <laughs> no, so I, I, I'm just making the the same point um, again about when when you get confronted with Jesus, um, the real thing, in an unfiltered, unvarnished way. Um, even the politic question, you know, quickly goes out the window. And so, the thing that's been the most encouraging for us is what what. You know, instead of building a church on homogeneity um, to try to build a church yeah. on something else has been really, really now we're not as diverse as I'd love it and, you know, so on, so on, so on. But we're way more than I've ever been. 
um, in a, in a community I've been a part of. And so it's been really, really interesting. That's why, that's why we love the space you're in. We're trying to do that too. And, um, you know, cause there are enough podcasts that are just doing deconstruction, right? Here are the big questions, here are the scholars that can help us deconstruct, but there's just not enough work for my kids, um, and the faith they're going to grow into, um, that can't just be the remnants of, you know, whatever's left standing after we've flamed everything. Yeah. So, yeah. so love it. Great. <laughs> so where, so well, where can people you find any you? More questions? <laughs> do you have any more? Yeah. Okay. I was just saying, if you have more questions for me, um, people can find me in a number of places. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Dan K O C H Dan Coke. Um, the both podcasts are up wherever podcasts are listened to depolarize and reconstruct, um, depolarizepodcast.com, reconstructpodcast.com. <laughs> I think that's basically it. That's man. awesome, yeah. bro. It, and then for my listeners, where oh, can yeah. people find you? Yeah, go ahead, Andy. Oh, yeah. So you could, uh, website is voxpodcast.com. Uh, in addition, you can check out the church, which is Vox Community. And that's voxoc.com. Uh, two podcasts available. This one, which is Vox Podcasts uh, with Mike Erie on iTunes and wherever you can find podcasts. And the other one is just uh, Vox Community. And yep, on Twitter at uh, the Vox Podcast, T-H-E, Vox Podcast. Wow. And um, that's a lot. I know that's a we're lot. Doing we, we, we do we do too much. We've what been do you do for work? Confusing. What do you Slow do, Dan? Roll, we couldn't guys. figure out. What do you? How do you make money? Right, you're a musician. Oh, yeah, your podcast. I, I do what else commercials, do? commercial music. So I'm a commercial composer. Oh, nice. I write music for licensing. If people are in that world, you can hire me at dancoke.net. That's what I'm talking but about. I don't norm. I don't talk about that quite as much on the shows. Hey, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Yep, I, it's my tent making, man. Right, yeah, right. Seriously, yeah, yeah. Fun tidbit, like because yeah. Dan, uh, we Dan and I kind of come from similar music backgrounds. So my band did actually open for his band Sherwood. I mean, it had to have been if, um, well married for seven. I mean, probably this was almost ten years ago. Wow. So up in yeah. San Luis Obispo at like this uh, like pizza brewery place. Like I can't remember what it was called, but um, yep. yeah. And then and, slow brew, man. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's what it was slow brew. Yep. And then uh, we actually did like two other shows with you guys at like churches in the area so we we opened a couple yeah. church shows and then played with them at this random brew. so it's oh a really goodness. funny full circle 10 years later to come around full to circle it, man it's cool yeah it's really cool well and bad christian guys i toured with them when they were in emory 11 years ago and that's how we became friends and yeah it's, it's a bunch of us ended up in this weird right sort of nether world of podcasting yeah absolutely very cool so anyways hey man it was it was fantastic to have you on thank yeah, you yeah, so that was really great time. Yep. Thank you for sharing your guys' perspective. You guys are on the ground doing the real work. So thanks for <laughs> oh, doing man. that. Yeah, of course. Trying. Boots on the ground. We're big fans. <laughs> yep. We will not add one other word. Holy cow, that was long. Yeah. Um, but thank you for for sticking with it. Um, thank you for our Patreon supporters. You guys are amazing and allow us um, to continually upgrade stuff. And so thank you. Um, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and may he give you peace in these days. Blessings upon you, my friends and brothers and sisters until next time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Vox podcast. Learn more about us at voxpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Vox podcast and now support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash voxpodcast.